Welcome to Martial Wisdom. Here you can listen to conversations on all kinds of topics related to martial arts. The topic for today's podcast is the martial mindset. Joining me in this discussion is Paul Kale. Before we get started, please consider supporting this podcast by liking and sharing it. If you're interested in even more content, please consider subscribing to the Spirit Aikido online program. I'm proud to announce that the program now has over 250 videos. Another option is to contribute any amount you like through the PayPal tip jar. Even small contributions are greatly appreciated. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now, on with the discussion. Uh, welcome to Modern Aikidoist Podcast and Martial Wisdom, and it is my great pleasure to have Paul Kale with me today. Uh, we had spent some time getting the, our schedules linked up so we can, we can have him on the show and talk about the martial uh, mindset. So welcome, Paul. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be here. Excellent. Uh, feel a little bit of, bit of uh, challenge with the. I always have it with talking with folks in Australia because our times are so different. So it's I think it's evening for me and it's afternoon or is it morning for you there? No, it's uh, two p.m. on uh, Tuesday. Tuesday, two p.m. Okay, sounds great. Well, uh, let's get right into it. Uh, the martial mindset. I think this is a, a tremendous topic, and I, I wanted to maybe have you go into a little bit of your background too because I don't think everybody necessarily understands just how much experience you have with so many different aspects of, of Marshall. Um, so maybe you could go into that. Yeah, sure. Um, as far as my martial art background, I, I kicked off with martial arts in uh, sort of towards the end of 1979. And uh, the first martial art I did was Taekwondo. Um, back then you're quite limited in your choices. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, inspired by Bruce Lee and off you go and go look for martial art. Um, and basically I've been doing martial arts ever since. So um, since then I've, I've studied, uh, always cross-trained and not because I was sort of uh, clever and ahead of my time, um, but I wanted to train all the time. I was obsessed. So we had the club formats so most places had two classes a week so i just looked for the opposite uh, a club that would have the opposite timetable and i and i wasn't smart enough to learn the nuances of uh, a grappling or striking art that was similar so i would do grappling and i would do striking so they're completely separate so luckily enough i've been cross training since the 80s but all by um accident basically so, um, yeah, so I've been doing, uh, I've trained in, uh, I'll, I'll, I've trained in a lot of martial arts. The ones that I hold uh, a minimum of black belt in, Shodan, a minimum, is um, uh, Yoshinkan Aikido, if you, we're talking about Aikido, so I'll, I'll cover off on them. Yoshinkan Aikido, Tamiki um, Aikido, and um, Gokushinru, which is basically Yoseikan Aikido, but with the uh, situation with the name um, being held by Mochisuki Sensei's son in, in France and so on, it's called Gokushiru in Japan. Um, so they're the three styles, and that's obviously two of them are sort of around about 1920 vintage, and the other one's 1930, so all pre-war styles, pre-World War II styles. I also have a black belt in um, Kodokan Judo Taekwondo, which was the first martial art I did. Um, I have a seventh degree black belt with the Kyokushin Budokai under um, John Blooming, the late John Blooming sensei. 
um, Kudo Dodijuku with Azuma Takashi Sensei and Aussie Branch Chief for Australia, as I am with the uh, Kyokushin Budokai Khan. Um, uh, what else do I have? Did the Aikido's, Judo, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. I have a, a, a black belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. I'm about to go into my second degree. And that's with uh, Jean-Jacques Machado, Master Jean-Jacques Machado. Um, I think, I think that's, that's um, most of them. So I think it works out to about nine black belts. Um, and varying grades from first, second, fourth, and seventh degree being my highest. And then so, you have also a robust experience with the military and with uh, training combatants, yes. special forces and whatnot, which is very intrigued to, to talk with you about this specific subject because of the crossover, not just from the martial art training aspect, but also the reality based uh, <clears throat> kind of fighting for your life realm. Of yeah, I'm, I've, I've, uh, I'm the cre a creator of the Australian Army Combatives Program. So that's probably what I'm most well known for. Um, and that's, I, I, I'm a member of Special Forces or former member of uh, Second Commando Regiment, Australian Commandos. Um, and I did uh, five tours of Afghanistan um, where we're a direct action organization, the Second Commando Regiment. So a lot of combat experience. Um, I became well known in the media in Australia um, through a Vice documentary around uh, being involved in hand-to-hand -hand combat with the Taliban. Um, so yeah, I have, I, I've got that side, um, New Zealand now uses the program as well. So it's sort of like an Anzac Australian New Zealand program. Um, and we do a lot of work with, uh, us Marines that come through the program whilst they're stationed in Australia. And, uh, I, I did a lot of traveling in the U S I think around about 2010, I was asked to, uh, did some stuff with, uh, Navy SEALs and US Special Forces, and then the US Special Forces sent instructors over to do our instructor course. The, the program's different to your normal, it's not an individual martial arts program, it's very much about um, how to fight in pairs and how to fight in teams and so on, mm -hmm. and take advantage of uh, weapons and accessing weapons and so on. So it's actually very similar to some of the old Kuru of Japanese, martial arts mm. um i am also currently just kicked off with uh, shinto muzaru um and also i studied um yagu shinkage for about seven years mm. so i do have ex experience in the old kuru as well sure um yeah it's do you ever sleep i guess is the question with all of that experience right now all the time <laughs> catching up on my sleep now Nice. But yeah, I look, I don't, I'm, I'm not good at ball sports. I don't do anything else, you know, like it's all, it's all I've done and it's sort of become my livelihood and my life. Mm -hmm. um, but I do get some unique uh, perspectives. Um, I do a lot of work with police here as well and corrections and um, different things like that. But yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. Well, Excellent. I, I love those that combination of backgrounds. And I, it's, I guess, what I'd consider almost the cross training of looking at how martial arts, based on those different applications, whether it's the military or whether it's police, which is focused on control and restraint, or civilian 
self-protection or self-defense is going to have a little <clears throat> slightly different flavor. But the idea that the martial mindset to me is that consistent thread with, with each one of those, because whether you're a sport fighter, you're defending yourself, you're a soldier, uh, police officer, you're always at risk. There's, there is a significant amount of risk there. And I think that <clears throat> I guess maybe the place to start would be to, to cover that. What, the, what is the definition of martial? Because I've seen many people argue about what martial is. And I think it's in the last you know, 50 years that umbrella of, of martial has expanded to cover all kinds of different things that really aren't really very martial. And I guess that might be a good place to, to start with that. I you know the definition is martial, you know, you get out of the dictionary is um, skills related to combat and war. Um, basically some kind of fighting. Yeah, well, martial, yeah, it's pertaining to Mars, the Roman god of war. Mm -hmm. So for something to be martial, it's to be of, of, of um, to be warlike. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's interesting because I, you know, I, I've, I've, uh, whenever I speak about something, I tend to speak from experience. So, you know, I, I see a perspective that everyone brings to it. Um, you know, jiu-jitsu guys say one thing and then Aikido guys and then military people. And quite frankly, it's a big problem we had in the army at the beginning before the combatives, before our program began, was we had, you know, an attitude of just shoot them. You know, why, why are you doing this hands-on stuff? And then we also had the, you know, very strong influence of the, you know, garrote, the Germans and, and uh, you know, the Sykes-Fairburn type thing for the unarmed combat. So the unarmed combat was so niche, it didn't make sense to people that weren't interested in it. And the shooting, it's a little bit too simple to say just shoot people. And, you know, Australia's experience up to, uh, probably up to Somalia is predominantly jungle, jungle warfare. So when you look at it, um, you know, we're involved with the Boer War and, and so on, anywhere that England, any war that England was in, we're there. But World War One was sort of as, sort of the second Boer War was when our nation became Australia, you know, became a federal uh, country, if you like, in 1901. And uh, so we were sort of independent states under the Commonwealth that belonged to England and then we formed together as a country. So our, we had soldiers that were of states like the Victorian militia or Victorian or New South Wales rifles or whatever. And whilst they're in uh, South Africa, they became the Australian um, army, you know? So it's interesting. So World War I was really the first time we as a country had a army. And it was the, called the Australian um, Imperial Forces, the AIF. And um, World War II, the interesting thing with that is, you know, World War I, we predominantly fought um, in Europe and then ended up fighting, you know, Gallipoli uh, with the Turks and so on. But World War II um, saw the Japanese threat. So uh, our government pulled our soldiers out of the Middle East so we'll desert warfare and return to second AIF, returned to 
um, Australia. And then that was the beginning of jungle warfare, fighting in Papua New Guinea and up north and so on. And the interesting thing is we came out of that with um, the Malaysian emergency or Malay emergency with the communist threat. And then that led into um, Borneo as well. And then that led into Vietnam supporting the US. So Australia's predominantly been involved heavily in jungle warfare and, and very good at it, very experienced since World War II. Um, also in Korea, but um, yeah, so then came along, you know, so the attitudes, um, I guess our experience is very much jungle orientated. Then we ended up in the urban space. And what you find out in the urban space is people don't just like getting shot, funnily enough. So if they're close to you and you have a fail, uh, your weapon fails or you're at close quarters, um, people will grab you and fight to control your weapon and so on. So now you're in the situation of same as the battlefields of Japan. You've got swords and stuff. Someone's at close quarters. They're going to try and stop you from, from cutting them. And if they don't have a weapon system to do that, they'll grab a hold of you. And that's, you know, when you look at um, the, the Japanese arts, a lot of these arts are about just supporting the weapon system. And that's sort of how we've taken on what we're doing, supporting the weapon system, rather than me being unarmed fighting. It makes no sense to just obviously be unarmed. I need to arm myself. Yeah. You know, when I think of Marshall, throughout most of history, in fact, I think this is only a fairly recent development that hand-to-hand -hand combat was not as much a part, a prevalent part in warfare up until even a century ago, like in World War One, hand-to-hand combat was a was a significant, played a significant role in warfare. And so yeah. to say that something is martial, uh, to my mind at least, when you look at the broad spectrum of human history, it in, it involves you know some kind of either hand-to-hand -hand or weapon in hand, but you are fighting another human being. Who's, who's right there as opposed to, for example, a drone pilot or uh, you know, something of that nature. And even though the, the tools of warfare have advanced, I would say that a you know, fighter pilot climbing into a cockpit has every bit the martial mindset of a foot soldier in, in a trench or uh, in the, the uh, you know, building to building type fighting scenario you described you know, in an urban environment. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that's the mindset that we, we want in all our, you know, pilots and, you know, mm -hmm. what they have is a weapon system is simply an extension of themselves. Mm -hmm. So they're the person that kills the enemy and your rifle is an extension of that mindset. It's a weapon system that enables you to do what you need to do mm -hmm. um, better, more efficiently. So it's, a, it's, a, it's interesting, I guess, when some people listen to that, they, they think, you know, that, the best thing is that it's like a it's like a sword, you know. Violence is is like a sword. You know, you you want to do good, but it's a tool, and you sometimes need to draw your sword um, to protect people and to protect what's important and to protect good. So to me, it's a tool. Violence is nothing but a tool. Um, it doesn't have a emotion. It doesn't have uh, an agenda. It is a tool that bad people tend to use um, to achieve their outcomes and good people need to be skilled and understand that to counter it. You know, it's, I liked, um, 
I think Bruce Lee was big on this and he wanted to convey this in his films about the fact that strength, and I think he was referring to prowess or, or skill at, at arms, is the virtue by which all other virtues can survive. Because without that strength, it doesn't matter how kind or generous or polite or, um, you know, how good your character is. But if you don't have the strength to defend yourself or your family or your loved ones, all of that can be taken away very quickly by somebody who does not have those virtues, but has the one virtue of strength. Yeah, totally agree. And, um, you know, um, I think Jordan Peterson says it well with, you know, like a, you know, if you're if you're not capable of violence, you're not a pacifist. You just, uh, you know, you, you actually don't have any choice. Yeah, you, you just, you don't, you, you're... Harmless, you don't that's have, the word he uses, harmless. Yeah, you're harmless. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, if you can commit violence and choose not to, then you're a good person. So... You know, and I, I think, think that's, that's interesting. Yeah, that's because especially if you are incapable, then really your strategy is hope. And hope is not much of a strategy or luck, uh, counting on, yeah. you know, just being lucky enough not to encounter, uh, you know, a bad person or somebody who uh, is strong but has no qualms about, you know, enacting violence upon, upon you. And, yeah. Uh, I think though that, and I like how you, you sort of describe that too of the, within the military setting of, you know, the, the realms are gonna be a little different. I think in a military setting, it is crystal clear who your enemy is and that you have license to use your, your skills to overcome, you know, obviously an enemy force. And I think the civilian realm poses some challenges because it's not necessarily that clear. Um, and, and that's where that martial mindset, I think, has to switch on. And, you know, I think soldiers that go into, into theater, they know where they are. They know that they're in, in danger. They know that, that, that that's, you know, where they're gonna, they have that stress of, of uh, you know, going into life-threatening situations. And as I understand it, this is a lot of times why they will give soldiers reprieve by bringing them out of those theaters so that they can rest and, and allow them Selves to recoup, um, but with a civilian, you're going on about your business, you're out with your family, and suddenly you could be cross paths with a bad person or a, a potentially violent, you know, situation where you have to switch mindsets very quickly. What would you What would you say about the idea of that mindset having to turn on and off versus being on for an extended period? Well, um, I'm I'm incapable of turning the mindset off. So um, I, I always am looking for threats and stuff. And, and, you know, that's probably a product of, I mean, I was in, I was in Afghanistan 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, and Iraq 2009 as well. So, you, you, you know, that's what the length of the of World War Two. So it's, it's, it's going to affect you. So, as far as martial mindset goes, I, I uh, I'm always watching behaviour. And when you're in a civilian space in the battlefield, you, you kind of your enemy can hide amongst the civilian population. So you're looking for behaviour and you're looking for um, indicators. And I do that walking around streets and, and so forth. I'm always looking for. Um, behavioural indicators of potential threats and assessing my environment. 
and maneuvering myself. So I'm always um, making sure that I'm not going to be ambushed or caught off guard as much as I you know, can. And if I am caught off guard, then I'm going to use extreme violence to regain the initiative. Mm-hmm. But I'll, I'll try to avoid violence and I'll try to avoid myself being observed as a, as a threat so, um, so that I can manoeuvre and so on. So that, I think a lot of that, to me, fits in with uh, IQ strategy and thinking um, because, obviously, IQ is heavily influenced by swordsmanship. Swordsmanship is heavily influenced by Koro and Heiho. So, you know, if you sort of go backwards and sort of deconstruct or, or reverse engineer Aikido, there's a lot of answers to be found. Oh, I agree. In fact, you know, as, as going along that, that path of trying to make Aikido fit the way of strategy, and, and in my opinion, the, the, one of the crucial principles of the way of strategy is intercept your problem before it gets to be a huge problem it's easier to solve it early on before it gets on top of you and like you talked about with awareness and um you know trying to spot a predator or or a threat before it's up in your face you know it's 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 easier to avoid it than to have to face it and uh and i i was always taught that shoto seizu principle of control the first move and it speaks to exactly what you just described which is you know, you catch eye, uh, you see the see a threat before the threat sees you. That's like the mm. optimal strategy. Yeah. That, you know, yeah. uh, and that's the, the awareness part. And I think that any civilian needs to practice at least some of that to try to mitigate being being ambushed, because uh, an mm. ambush is ter- is terrifying. Somebody gets mm. the drop on you, and they they get the first move, and you're you don't even see it coming is is horrible like that'd be Mm. (laughs) the worst problem to try to solve yeah Um, yeah exactly mm -hmm. so um yeah and and with what you said before you you're talking about there's a lot of argument and so on where it sits and and like i was saying before about the the gunfighter just shoot him and and the um you know the very sort of niche unarmed combat uh, the, the way I overcome that problem was I basically agreed with the gunfighters of course we just want to shoot people but they don't like being shot so we need to enable people to uh, retain their weapon and clear people from the weapon system so you can carry on with the battle and also to the unarmed combat people that they need to compromise as well so that um, so that this is not a niche skill set it's a skill set across the board that others can study and make it niche but basically everyone's got the foundations so that kind of triggered it off for for made it made sense for people and obviously being involved in the war for such a long time um i mean it was our longest war same as the united states um so that sort of we learned a lot of lessons from that um but to me, the answers have always been there. You know, it's like uh, we, we train with live ammunition, we train with blank fire ammunition, we train with paint, man marking ammunition. To me, this is just like training with a live blade, a bokken or a shanai. It's a bamboo sword, wooden sword, live sword. And 
it's it's the martial sport, the martial art, the martial combatives, or the martial application. They're all just training mechanisms for the end state. Because the main thing is that, you know, unless you're someone who's living in a prison system or someone who's an incredibly brutal, uh, brutal individual that commits violence on innocent people all the time to develop the skill sets, which those people are out there. Um, if you're not that person and you don't want to be that person, but we need to protect ourselves from those people, then you have to find a way that will give you the skill sets without uh, compromising your, your values and your um, moral fibre. And the way we do that is, well, if, how do we make sword practice safe? We still have to practice the live sword, but then you'll do kata and so forth and understand movements with a bokken. And then you'll do, say, competition where you go, oh, you know, I'm changing where I'm attacking my attack points. I'm going to aim at the armour instead of aiming in between the armour and so forth to create an instinctive way of moving. To me, that's exactly the same in, in unarmed, you know, like, okay, I'm going to do some throws with you and so on. Are we hitting each other? No, not today. You know, like it's you've compromised to develop reactions and so on. And then, you know, you might go through a formal exercise of techniques, not as formal as a, a carter that's for display, but a structured format so that you're practising a, a, a trained response to a problem. Mm-hmm. And then there's the, what you learn from the actual battlefield ex- experience itself or the street confrontation and so on, which if the other elements are done properly, can not be as stressful as, as what you think. It, it's... Um, I've always found street confrontations, once I sort of crossed that line and switched and understood what I was doing, to be pretty easy to deal with. I mean, most people haven't got a clue how to fight. And um, really the problem is alcohol when it comes to the street or something like that or drug, being drug affected. And it's not all that hard to outwit a drug affected individual or to outflank them or what have you and control the situation you just got to have the confidence to do it and the ability to do it and if you try and do it you don't have any skills yourself that's where it all turns south you know i I like the 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 way you described outthinking your your attacker because i i think that that's what it really comes to and whenever i hear just to jump back what you said a little bit earlier about those people that say well just shoot them usually the when i hear the word just and it doesn't matter whether it's just poke them in the eyes or just kick them in the balls or just, you know, as soon as that just happens, it kind of reflects to me that somebody's trying to peddle some snake oil more than actually educate somebody about the, the language of, of violence. And it, it conveys like here, if you follow my instruction, I'm going to give you the shortcut to winning a fight or, or, or defending yourself. And, and, I've found that there really isn't a shortcut. There is just learning the language and being very fluent in understanding how bodies move, how attacks are structured, how to protect yourself and, and move like you described about, you know, shifting and taking control. There are there really isn't a shortcut to, to learning those things and being able to be flexible of mind to say, what tool do I have to use for this particular moment? And whether it might be shooting somebody or it might be you know, causing some severe damage to them so that they cannot harm you or, or an innocent person. But without that mental flexibility to problem solve as you're going, even in a very quick, uh, uh, sudden t- 
type situation, you shut your mind off because you think, oh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do what I was told, you know, would solve my problem. Uh, I've never heard anybody come back and, and say, oh yeah, that, that shortcut I learned was perfect. That was great. <laughs> it worked, it worked yeah, like a charm. Exactly. <laughs> and, and also just being told something uh, won't work for you. I mean, basically um, you hear people talk about their life past before their eyes. Mm -hmm. what, what that is, is the brain Rolexing through um, experiences that it's had that may be a solution to this life-threatening situation. Mm -hmm. And you don't Rolex through um, training. You don't Rolex through what you've been told. You Rolex through what you've experienced. Mm -hmm. And that's when you realise how important it is to create experiences and training. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of time is what lets Aikido down. They don't generate experiences that um, that stay with you um, and and that's it you know I mean you look at uh, let's look at um, UFC for instance or, or mixed martial arts and you know people almost think that if it's not found in the cage a technique then it's not going to work well you know headbutts are allowed in uh, combat sambo kudo daijuku there's several arts uh, there's also a Thai art as well that allows it. And they work just fine, but they're illegal in the UFC. So, you know, oh, I've never seen headbutts in the UFC. Again, it's ignorance. You know, it's the popular thing. Um, they don't see it. They don't understand it. And that's just one example of many. But um, people are very naive when it comes down to violence. And I find that, you know, if I was talking about well, I shouldn't, you know, I was going to say, well, I was talking about uh, mathematics and so on, then people kind of will say, well, I'm not good at math, you know. Mm -hmm. But violence, for some reason, like, maybe it's testosterone or something, we all think we're good at it. Right. And um, Especially when you walk out of a John Wick movie or if you just see Rocky, most people yeah. tend to walk out thinking they're, they're awesome fighters. <laughs> yeah, it's just, uh, it's amazing. And then you actually... The reality is a very different thing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and and you know, I I see that when people are making comments, oh yeah, but I think this should be this, and I'm like thinking they've seen a snippet of something and really don't understand context. Uh, whereas you know, I've had you know what forty odd years experience in in my field, and you know, governments around the world have utilised the skill sets and so on, and, and I look at it and I, um, I'm always investigating. I'm always looking at what people have to say. You know, I'll watch a, I'll watch a seminar. Um, there's some people I really enjoy watching. And there'll be, you know, two minutes of information out of a two-hour seminar that just, you know, resonates with me and what made it worthwhile. And I'm always... And a lot of things now I actually look outside of martial arts. I look outside um, and look at things that correlate with, with certain thinking. And uh, yeah, it's, a, it's very interesting. You know, I remember reading an article many years ago that uh, covering the psychology of how the brain works. And it, it says that the brain, when it sees something, for example, a, a movie, it can't really discern between movie and reality. Like it, it views what you see in that movie as being real and plausible. Um, 
And so I think there's where we get, especially with civilians, well, I suppose everybody to some certain degree, when they watch violence for entertainment, they view that as being, that's what violence actually looks like. And, but it, but it isn't, it's been dressed up and uh, made presentable so that it is exciting, dramatic, um, kind of pleasing to the eye um, and draws you into the, to, into being excited. Uh, whereas, you see a lot of, and I'm sure you've seen them for real, but people have seen real fights or footage of real fights. They don't look anything like what they do in the movies. It's usually like no. wildcats tumbling around. And um, like you said, the people tend to fight stupid. And, you know, generally yeah. I mean, if, if you're trying to, if you're trying to you know what you're doing, you just, you see someone and, and it's, it, again, it's, it can look, it can be very disturbing to see it. But someone who knows what they're doing, someone who's very comfortable in that space, there it's so dangerous because people are so overwhelmed by the situation. Um, uh, you know, have, don't have a clue what they're doing, and and you know, I I'm well versed in violence and understand it, and I will do all I can to avoid it because. You, you make a mistake and um, either you or the other person could end up dead. And that's not something that anyone wants. So these are the interesting things that for me hold with the whole term of Ikea. Um, so there's a lot of in there that resonates with me. The, the issue I have is that I believe people should have very solid skill sets and then use the concepts to avoid violence and, and understand it. I don't think there's any requirement for people not to be good uh, or capable of the skill sets they have. And also watching people try to change. I mean, I, I did the same thing when I was young. I'm literally watching people go through these stages of trying to make Aikido work and all this. And they're, they've seen it from a different, they've seen it, it's, it's not suited. You can watch boxing and you can watch someone slip a punch and then and step off that lead foot, and that looks like a kid, looks like a tenkan, you know. Mm -hmm. there, there's so many places to see Aikido, but you will find it more in a football field with someone dodging someone or coat hangering someone for a tackle. Um, you, there's so many other places that you can see the applications of Aikido, um, and it's the best place isn't, isn't the UFC but you'll see it in the street. You'll see the application of it. Or on the football field, that's a big one. High tackles and things like that. There's a reason high tackles are elite. Um, because they just, you know. So you you're talking Australian rules football? Uh, rugby, rugby okay. union. Or, yeah, I'm not, rugby. As, not as familiar with rugby, so describe a high tackle. Well, just imagine American football without armour, and then you have someone go high tackle and grab your head as you're running with the ball. Oh, okay. So, code hanging to you. So, to me, that's an Illuminati. Sure. That's illegal because obviously you can do a lot of damage. <laughs> right. Um, it's, so, it's illegal. And, and you know, when I look at a lot of these illegal techniques, there's elements of that to Aiki. And then, you know, you look at the, it's just so many pieces in there. And, um, and then I look at wrestling, and there's so many elements that are similar. It's that wrestlers, Mm -hmm. are very tight with the their positions and so forth but the action is very similar so mm -hmm. i just think it, to me it's uh it's just understanding probably 
then fighting nuances of what you're doing, why you're doing it. And then, you know, it, it's it's an odd thing, you know, because I, I, I did Aikido and for some reason I'm always attracted. I'm always attracted back to it. Mm-hmm. Um, my, the Aikido I did, I must admit, I started the, my first Aikido classes was Aikikai in 1985 so that was the first time i was uh, exposed to aikido mm. and then i moved to uh join the army and i was posted and then i ended up doing yoshinkan aikido which mm. i very much enjoyed and made a lot of sense to me mm-hmm. and i went to japan in 91 and, and training at the humble dojo yoshinkan mm-hmm. but then i wanted to compete and you know i looked into tamiki and so forth and put it under pressure and so on but i always had the exposure to judo and jujitsu. And so it was getting that complete look, but the, the Aikido has a lot of depth. The Aiki concepts and thinking has a lot of depth to it. So it always stays with me. It always is something I use. And I, 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 I uh, compete, like not compete, what's the word? Roll, what jujitsu guys call roll, randori. Mm-hmm. I prefer the term randori, you know, it, Controlled chaos, you know, right. Rand's chaos and you know, mm-hmm. Dory is your practice of chaos. And, you know, I'm always doing techniques on people. I'm always doing um, what would people know best? Uh, probably uh, Nikkei Jo, Sankei Jo, mm-hmm. are they words that everyone, Nikkyo, Sankei yeah, type Nikyo, stuff. Sankyo. Yeah, you know, Kotahaneri, you know, it, there's different names for each of them. You know, that's mm-hmm. probably the trouble of learning three styles is that it's three names for each of them but um it's you know and i put a lock on and people tap and i just go remember aikido doesn't work because i walk <laughs> off and i'm always you know having someone scream with a wrist lock and just go remember aikido doesn't work mm-hmm. or, or or doing what i'm doing but there's so much more aikido in what i do but i can't say it's aikido because you know it's it pushes it has a a stigma about it now you know sure you know it's funny but, i've run into a number of people yeah. that have that will say of aikido they'll, they'll kind of look down their nose at it and then they'll say don't ever let them get a hold of you don't ever, ever let somebody in aikido get a hold of your limb or you're going to be in real trouble oh yeah you know i mean the first thing that's going to touch you in grappling is a hand you know mm-hmm. and it's you know the interesting thing is brazilian jiu-jitsu allows wrist locks so mm-hmm. You can crack some some interesting stuff on people, and sure. and you get them where they where they think they're not vulnerable, and um, and I look I was doing wrist locks in I started Brazilian Jiu Jitsu in the early nineties, mm-hmm. and I was doing wrist locks early because I that's you know I knew wrist locks and they'd say no don't do that you need to learn the Jiu Jitsu and so you know pull back so I understand the art of Jiu Jitsu which you know I appreciate that, mm-hmm. but now they've become a big thing wrist locks. But they're very basic, what you see jiu-jitsu people do, very basic and, and um, very limited. Uh, there's a lot more you can do to people. But if you are going to do that, you need to have the nuances of wrist locks. And that requires a lot of experience. Yeah, it is. Wrist locks are not a, oh, you just do this. <laughs> Back to yeah, the, the just right. word. It's now you have to, yeah. you have to have, know your stuff pretty solidly to get that in. You know, one of the things I think that a lot of people tend to believe the martial mindset is, and maybe they've just seen too many action movies, but the idea that you, 
you know, like the hero gets beaten up and then he gets angry and then he goes out and he, he goes and fights and defeats the villain. And that the martial mindset has something to do with anger or rage or um, has an emotional base. Everybody that I've ever met or worked with um, that has been fluent in the language of violence always says the same thing. Do not let it become emotional. Like you, you should view yourself more as a professional than letting like yourself become a berserker and, and go into a rage and start, you know, pounding away. Because when you do that, you, you aren't able to do really tap into your training. In fact, your training goes right out the window the minute you let that, that mindset uh, come into play. I, and I wouldn't say that that's a fighter's mindset. It's not a, a warrior's mindset or a martial mindset. It's more of just being a, a thug or a, you know, some kind of a berserk. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's a, it's a response to fear. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like anger can be uh, a response to being sad, emotion, you know, rage and so on. So, you know, it's, it's yeah, you see people with this rage and, and other people very comfortable and just it's another day at the office. But um, for, for me, the martial training mindset Initially, it was it was to understand as much as I could as a young as a young person. There was there was a lot to learn from martial arts practice, but for me now, it's more of a calming influence. It helps me stay calm, and you'll hear a lot of veterans talk about that. That you know, training is like like I, I don't care if someone taps me out. It's like I've I've fought on the battlefield, but you know, I don't really care about tapping to someone or. If they think they have it over me, you know, playing the sport, uh, they're very naive. You know, it's like a, it's it's us contesting, and I, I want to be better at what I do, and they want to be better, and we play. Um, but people who wield violence don't play. You know, they they're the guy that you know you bump into at the bar, and you you, you know you gob off, and they go, and they just leave, and you think, well, everything's okay. And they're waiting for you in the dark alley with a with a piece of iron and, and belt you across the head as you walk into your car. They they they're, they're not there to uh, to show off to their mates and show who the the champion is. They're not posturing as an alpha male. They're 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 literally hunting, and you've just been you've just identified yourself as a victim who's waiting for the the gazelle to lead the herd and uh yeah so people just need it's such in the hands of evil people it, it's it, it's it's horrendous what violence can do and that's i think what people think of as violence mm -hmm. um but to me when i train people in in how to fight violence i explained to them it's it's you're a bit like a firefighter you're learning how to use fire to fight fire like back burning and so on you know you've mm -hmm. got you've got to understand what fire is so you can survive it and fight it sure. um, if you don't understand what fire is then every, you know all your firefighters are just going to be burnt to death as they try to do something about it right and and it's it's something that you don't idolize fire or worship it or are terrified by it it's merely a tool that you understand yeah. how it works yeah. and when you understand it then 
that helps mitigate the fear. It helps you function. And I'd say the same thing. I've, you know, I've seen videos of these guys that handle cobras and things like that, you know, which a normal person go, I wouldn't not going near a cobra, but they know how, it, how a cobra moves. They can, they understand that the body language, they know what the danger is and how to, how to avoid it. And they, you can tell that they will, their blood pressure doesn't even go up. They're like, I know how to deal with these animals, even though they are very dangerous. Um, and, you know, I ran across a, a saying just the other day, it says, uh, don't train for certificates, rank or trophies, train for the day when your training will save your life or somebody else's. And, and I really like that concept because, you know, and I appreciate the people that get into martial arts because they like dressing in the outfits and they like the, the camaraderie and they like, um, you know, the fitness aspects or the improving their balance or coordination and all those other things. But, and that martial arts training is great for all that, but that core of having the, of the priority of saying, I'm going to do this because it could save my life one day. I, I see that lacking in a fair amount of martial arts training in just people. And, you know, I don't blame them for it. I don't condemn them or, or judge them for that. But I, I'm also puzzled by, by looking at them and seeing how they're, they're kind of missing one of the biggest benefits of martial arts training because they don't seem to be interested in that aspect of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, it, it does. But the, to, to be good at, um, to learn what's required and to practice, you, you need to be humble and you need to um you need to be willing to learn and i and when i look at martial arts i'm not seeing and i'm talking that i guess let's talk japanese budo you know and military is military so it also has discipline but i guess that's what i recognize with japanese budo it's something that had a a left and right of arc and had a structure to it that made learning for me easy um but we're all the same. We're all white belts and we're all wearing the same gi. And what allowed us to progress was our ability and our willingness to learn and improve. And all of a sudden, you know, you rose through the ranks. Whereas today, it's, it's all about the individual. not And I think that's what makes it hard. So every individual wants to wear their own gi and they want this and they want that. And, you know, they want their own techniques and their own thoughts about how to do something and that's fine for your game but it's you know you that game may not be suited to dealing with violence um it's suited to dealing with it, it's almost the the game is a great way of developing skill sets so creating a game is a great way to get everyone keen to train and develop skill sets the problem with the game is that when you play the game for the game's sake, you've lost the, the reason for the game in the first place. Mm. So that's the issue. So most people like jujitsu guys, people and so on, play for the sake of jujitsu. They want to be champion. You go, why do you want to be a jujitsu champion? Oh, because jujitsu is the best martial art. Well, it's not much like what jujitsu was when they're fighting Valetudo to be the best to show the world that they were what they were, what you're doing is not much like that at all. You know, it's, uh, you're not thinking about someone striking you or 
being kicked or hit. You're, in actual fact, you actually need a whole bunch of training if you're to switch to MMA. Whereas when I was young, you know, we did jujitsu and, and we practiced striking or we came from striking backgrounds, you know, fighters were attracted to jujitsu. And everyone said, well, thugs and, you know, this cage fighting is just thuggery and so on. But, you know, we, we saw the requirement to be all round and having that ground game. And I mean, I did judo and I thought, you know, I have Nawaza, but after wrestling, someone like Jean Shark, which the first seminar was 97, I think, with Jean Shark Machado. And, you know, he just put me in a pretzel, you know, and just played with me. And I went, oh, right, I need to learn this. And that's always something I did, you know, the same as when I came across Kipchin, I'm getting leg kicked and it's like, what the hell? And it's it's like, you beat me up, I'm there, I'm in front of you. I'm like, okay, good, teach me. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, I find that the individualism and the whole idea of Budo is it shapes you. And if you are shaping it, if you turn up and, you know, it's this culture that's about individuals and do do as you like and play your game. It's not shaping anyone. It's not a. It's not to me. That's not a martial art. That's just a game. That's a, a team that you're a part of, and you're playing a game. And and, I and can see the appeal of the yeah. game because violence really is ugly. It's it's hard to look at. It it takes um, a, basically a kind of a thickening of the skin of your soul to be able to look at somebody who is really trying to come after you and do you harm uh, and not shrink from that. But, but to me, that's really the, the goal of, of true martial training is to, is to make it so that you do not shrink in fear when you see those, the teeth get bared and, and somebody is coming at you with intensity. And it's fine to take people that are, that, you know, begin and everybody's pretty sensitive, I think, to that, unless they have some kind of real life experience with with violence in their past but it it takes part of that train part of the training is to build that mental strength in addition to the physical skills so that you do not become afraid and and i look at training as being the ladder that you climb to get to be able to face more and more fear as you get more experienced and so there are there's less and less out there that really makes you afraid um you know, there, there, it'll never be that there was nothing that will cause you concern in terms of your safety, because like you said earlier, all it takes is one mistake. You, you miss noticing something and that can be it for you. So, you, I mean, you, you don't want to play around with violence, but, uh, but being able to know what you can handle and know what you, you can apply your training to when, when the time comes, when you can think straight, you can stay calm and do what, what needs to be done. I think that's really the goal of, the, of training under that martial mindset. Yeah, and I think a big part of that with the Japanese Budo is understanding that, um, like what you just said then, is there's just huge amount of range of circumstances and environments that there's no way you can train for everything. Mm-hmm. All you can train is your core skill sets and apply it to what you come across. But the way to control fear is to, and, you know, I don't want to sound like a, a cliche, but these are thoughts that you've, you have to reconcile when you're always, when you're constantly going to a war zone, coming back from a war zone. And, you know, you have this, these spikes where 
you have this big spike the first time you go to a war zone, then you have this big calming sort of spike coming back. Then you realise you're going to go back again. And then the spike's not so much when you go there. And then when you come back, the relief is not so much. And then you just sort of flatline. And eventually you're just not at war and you're not at peace. You're just this middle ground. And, you know, Budo is the, the thing that, that calms you in battle is realising that the worst that's going to happen to you is die and just reconciling with death. You know, if, you know, you could be the one that dies. Okay, no worries. And, and that's a tradition that goes back through the through the samurai. Exactly. And that's, yeah, and that's why I'm saying it sounds cliche, but um, that's exactly what, you know, and once you reconcile with that, then you have to, this sounds weird. This is the issue that veterans have, is that once you've reconciled with death and you didn't die, you have to then reconcile with living mm. again. And that's also what Budo can teach you. It can teach you to live after you've emotionally accepted death mm. and, and just have a balance that death is a passenger with life. It's something that it comes in at any time you don't choose. Um, you, you may, part, you know, participate in how that happens, but in the end, it's, it's coming and just to get on with it. And, and to die a, a good death, you know. Again, it's, when I hear myself say that, it sounds cliche, but it's exactly how I think. And it's just um, that, that to me is a martial mindset. That to me is, uh, is Budo. Yeah, I, I like that description. Um, some of the, the people that I've trained with that have had real world violence experience, uh, and I wanted to dispel this myth too, the idea that training with the martial mindset means that you kind of furrow your brow and you, you start playing hard or mean, or you're really learning to try to hurt other people. My experience has been kind of the reverse is the people that want to learn to, that want to train with that mindset. They don't want to let their mind slip into anger or, or um, vengeance when they're handling somebody, they want to keep their mind flexible. They even enjoy it. In fact, I've had some very, um, maybe not the word pleasant, but lighthearted but intense exchange, physical exchanges within training. Mm. And, and I think that that serves a psychological benefit where if you do get into a physical exchange, you're not going to slip into a dark mindset that could take you beyond where you'd ever want to go or do something that you could wind up paying very dearly for, uh, especially mm. in a civilian environment. Um, I think the military environment's got a, a little different uh, pallor to it, but uh, yeah, but the idea that you you train seriously, but not take yourself too seriously, in the fact that you want to you want to not only train your body, but how how your mind works in that environment, and get it as close as you can, you know, without going crazy or hurting each other, uh, to be able to create that that mental. Uh, mental state that you want to have when when you are under stress like that yeah exactly and um yeah and and it's if you watch people wrestling you watch people uh compete and they get upset when they lose then um obviously they've not got that mindset because mm -hmm. that's an example of 
a loss that represents, you know, being incapacitated or killed, then we should, it, if, if you've come to some sort of understanding with what this means for you, then when someone taps you, I just tap, like someone catches me, tap and roll over and start fighting again. It's like, okay, kill me, I don't care. It's like, it's nothing emotional about it. I just don't mind. It's just part of the game we're playing. And, um, and then you see if, that, if you're calm in your mind through loss like that, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter to you. That's, and that's, that's when you start becoming powerful. That's, and that's also um, such a powerful thing for life because if you can apply this life and death mindset when you're living, then you can rise up out of financial collapse or a business going belly up or family falling apart. You, you rise back up like a you know, phoenix and reinvent yourself and go again. And that's, you know, that's the bit that becomes powerful in applying that to life. And that's the mental strength that uh, that you build through that training. I will often tell my students, even the ones who start out, I'll say only about 20% of what you're going to learn here is physical. The other 80% is mental. And and you can you're, you can have your let your body go through the motions, but if you if you're not letting your mind absorb what the physical will teach the mind, then you're kind of missing out. And so I really try to guide them into the the how you build the mental strength, like that is the, tr the true focus because without that mental strength, now all you're doing is letting your, having your body go through motions. And, you know, I'd call that dead kata or, you know, basically dead training, um, which, you know, unfortunately there's quite a lot of people doing that where they'll, they'll go through the choreography, whether it's a kata or whether it's, you know, paired, paired kata with, with Aikido, what have you. Um, and they can enjoy that experience, but, the, that mind part about honing themselves and building up strength over time is is missing. Um, so, and you can spot that that you know one in twenty or or one in fifty person that does to take it. Like they know that as they're doing their reps, they're like they can envision themselves saving saving themselves or protecting other people with what they're doing, and they take it. Mm -hmm. They, they really earnestly try to do it uh, as closely as possible to what that would, what reality would be. And, and you, you'll feel it too in oh, yeah. training. And uh, it's very fatiguing. It's mm -hmm. such, it's, it's such a burns a lot of energy that, that mental um, application of what you're doing, you know, I find it's something that's hard to sustain for, for a long period of time. So, you know, cle being clever in the way the class is structured and so on and, knowing what you want to get out of people. But kata, if it's well-formulated kata, it's, it is about uh, training the mind mm -hmm. through the motion. And the randori is more about instinctive application and answers to problems that come at you physically. You know, the mind obviously plays a part, but you're just sort of moving around and um, developing answers to problems without having to think too much. So they starting to have an instinctive reaction that you want. But kata, kata should be training the mind, like really heavily training the mind. And uh, I think a lot of 
modern style carters and miss miss um, what the older carter are a teaching the mm -hmm. the martial artist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's I Randori is one of my favorites, uh, but it really is a, a mental challenge. Like you said, not to let yourself get overwhelmed, not to panic, make good decisions each each point through and you know you will make mistakes but how quickly do you recover from them and, I, and i'd go back to what you said about that you know being able to you suffer a, a setback you get back up and you go and in randori that happens in a flash of a second you make a mistake you make a misstep you know you're in trouble now you got to get back on track and you have to do it you know without any delay um i, I really like so do you, do you so do aikido do you do aikido randori is yeah. that you play Aikido Randori? Yeah. yeah. Do you do it similar to like Tamiki style or? I've been told that the, the template that, that we got it from was from um, from Tamiki, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, and I've always like really anything. liked that. And I, I, you know, I was always told when I, when I first started Aikido that, you know, Randori was, was part of all I, of Aikido. And I came to find out that, that some organizations don't do it at all. Um, mm. I'm like, boy, you guys are missing out. This is this is fantastic. So yeah, it's 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 um, there's there's plenty of old styles that uh, old schools that are hundreds of years old that uh, have a form of free play. Mm -hmm. One of them is um, a spear, uh, and uh, it's the only thing besides Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu where I just could not come close. To hitting the uh, to to making a hit on the instructor, mm. couldn't come close. Uh, watch the way they move that spear and the angles and mm -hmm. everything else, but they controlled everything and it was like it was amazing. And sure. that's an old martial art, you know. Mm -hmm. It's not, um, yeah, it's it's interesting. So yeah, Randori definitely has a part to play in in, um, but obviously there's restrictions. So that um, so people aren't injured. Oh sure. So yeah, it's, Randori is a simulation. It's yeah, it's sure. as close as we can kind of kind of get safely um, to be able to train that that maneuvering and the, the chaos. Uh, I, I like that that word of uh, that Ron because that's really what it simulates is yeah. Is, you know, total. One mayhem. one thing I do a lot of is um, we get. Um, We'll have jiu-jitsu guys. And I have guys who are studying uh, Aiki Budo with me. Um, they do Brazilian jiu-jitsu as well. Most, all of them actually are, are black belts in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but they'll concentrate on their Aikido. Mm -hmm. And um, um, interestingly, it's really enjoyable doing it with people who are just playing their game, just doing their um, mm -hmm. whatever they want, and then working on how to hold and trap and keep the arm maybe in a Russian tie and then switching it into, um, you know, your, your Ude Gurami or um, um, your Aikido style techniques and making them work. It's very interesting. Sure. That must be a bit of a scandal having BJJ black belts interested in Aikido. I always heard oh, that there I've, was a I've, big... Uh... I've got heaps. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because, uh, you know, the, the depth can be quite limiting, you know, any sport, you know, how often do you see sports people uh, quit when they no longer can play their sport? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it gets to a point where, you know, what's, what, 
what's next? You're going to teach me another way of, you know, is there an, another purple belt's going to teach some crazy, look what I discovered, Kondigashi mm -hmm. or something, you know, like, <laughs> no, you didn't. Or, or leg locks or something, you know, stuff that you see in Kosen Judo or, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, they want to understand more and, and I guess where it comes from and, um, and so on. And they just need to be with someone comfortable. And, and because of my own background in jiu-jitsu, with Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you know, they, there's a language. It's, all these arts are languages. I mean, I almost teach very similar things. Uh, I, I have a sort of way I do things. And if I'm working with Aikido people, I speak in Aikido language. It's like if I'm working with Frenchmen, I'm going to speak French. Sure. And it's, it's like Makes if sense. I work with jiu-jitsu people, then okay, I'm using jiu-jitsu language or mm -hmm. all around fighting, I'm using, you know. So it's, it's, it's a, more of a language than a change mm -hmm. of technique or how I go about what I do. And I find that those three languages, really would be four languages, but judo, aikido, jiu-jitsu are so closely related in their principles that it, it, I'm almost sad that they separated off. Um, sumo would be the fourth. Um, as I understand it, sumo was a very strong influence for all Japanese martial arts. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, it's, it's the one I knew the least, that I know the least about in terms of how it's applied and, and the depth of of it it's it's an, a fairly intricate art um yeah but there's a lot of sumo in yeah yeah there's a lot of sumo in uh daitaru mm -hmm. You'll, they they have uh different names there are a couple of techniques that are similar same name but uh you'll see it. and and um uh takeda sensei loved doing sumo sure I mean, people don't realize that it's, you know, Japanese diets changed in only recent history, mm -hmm. only recently, you know, and uh, so Japanese weren't big people. Right. Um, there were some big people, but, you know, so it's just normally normal-sized people that would do sumo. Mm -hmm. And um, it's with the change of diet and things like that and sumo not having weight categories, mm -hmm. that's how we end up with what we see today. Right. But it's not, if you look at sumo fighters and these black and white photos and that, they're just quite strong wrestlers. Mm -hmm. They just look like wrestlers. So it's, uh, again, even the perspective of sumo changes. You know. Yeah. And I, I get sad when I, when I see these, these different Japanese arts that they have practitioners that look down on the other arts. I, like, I, I don't see that makes, that's productive at all. Or even, I mean, it's disrespectful, but it also limits what you can learn because there's so many good concepts from those other arts that apply directly to, to Aikido or to Judo or to Jiu Jitsu. Um, you know, I think what makes you, what might make you sad about that is that you realize that, but you don't realize how to speak their language mm -hmm. to get that message across. Sure. And I think, uh, you know, I th this is something that I'm thinking of concentrating more on is, is, probably i mean it's going to put me in a little box because obviously people can't you can't know more than one thing on the internet so it it's um yeah it's something that i'm interested in doing is, is showing the concept of Aiki in a, in a little bit of the like I've, I've watched a lot of people playing around with it and a lot of people on the internet have very limited time with it mm -hmm. and um and and 
next to no experience in other things and they're going through these things that in public on the internet that you know i went through similar things in the 90s early 90s thinking you know what's how's this working that why doesn't this work and and so on but um there's a few answers to some questions out there that can be shown and it doesn't mean that we have to hold our hands up and fight like a boxer because aikido is not for boxing mm -hmm. um but there's a lot of aikido um in what i do even in combatives i don't call it that um you know we have different names for it so that people aren't trying to get their head around what we're doing but there's a, there's a lot and then also um when i did yoshinkan i, I met kondo sensei of uh, daitaru uh, in 1991, you know, he was in his prime and he was explaining cushions, how, how many, how much there are cushions in, in learning techniques. And it's not until you're um, accepted in, a, in the school that you start to take these cushions away and start to show Aikido techniques, how they're done. And then the reality of those techniques when you take the cushion away and it kind of looks like Weshba Sensei, or more so his son, probably. That just it just looks like it's got all the cushions that are in place, and instead of spiraling down into the ground, it's all about circling and projecting, and it's mm. it's just a sort of bit of a shadow of its former self. And what you're saying about it's a shame that people don't understand or see from these other arts, how similar they are. Have a look at people like um, Mochisuki Sensei and Tamiki Sensei. They were eighth dance in judo, you know, like they are very senior judoka um, and sent by Kano Sensei to, to learn what Kano Sensei also thought was very impressive. Now, in saying that, what Kano Sensei saw was 1920s Aiki Buddha. Mm. All right, that's what he saw. So I get it when people see Aikido as it is today. And I also get it when you just have these clowns doing ridiculous things and call it Aikido. So that, this is the problem. I think this is the problem. Now, Jiu-Jitsu used to have a very similar problem. Jiu-Jitsu used to be thought very, very similar way until the Brazilians looked at the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And I think with Aikido, we can do the same thing. There might be a general poor term for it, but I think with what you've done with, you know, the martial side and so on. Mm -hmm. I think there can be an element Aikido where people go, no, 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 this is, this is different. This is where Aikido came from, what Aikido was, and also influenced by what we understand today. Yeah. And I mean, we're in, yeah. many arts have gone through this same problem with, they, they usually follow a curve. They come from a legitimate uh, proven background. They're pretty small, fairly specialized, or at least a you know fairly small amount of practitioners. Something happens, they become popular. They kind of get into the public eye. They you know suddenly flock, and they've got students flooding in, and charlatans start emerging who are teaching questionable things. And sometimes it goes right into patently absurd nonsense. And in doing so, there's usually a, a splinter small group of people that are training the legitimate side of that art, but they're overwhelmed by crowds of, of people that just want to 
you know, get a little taste or, or kind of pretend, you know, posers who, who want to look like they're the real thing, but, but don't really want to take the time and yeah. the effort that it takes to build the real skill, um, you know, along with instructors that, that put up schools and take people's money and never teach them anything because they don't know anything themselves. You know, I think that that happens. I've heard it happened with Silat back in the, I think it was the seventies or eighties. They had a huge surge in popularity and it always seems to come off of that popularity surge. Yeah. You know? Well, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is going through it now. Yeah, they are. I mean, there's, there's people getting black belts in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu that I wouldn't give a purple belt to. Mm -hmm. Like they're just, you know, I've wrestled some people and I just think you must be a charlatan. Mm -hmm. And you know they got their black belt, and they they'll have a certificate or whatever, and it's like mm, okay, and um, uh, they've just stepped through it. And and I mean the Shotokan guys would have said the same thing about karate when they're doing their point fighting, and you, you punch someone in the face, or they chop, you know, and they're not wearing any pads, and they're not doing kyokushin and such. But they they it, it was a rough looking uh, game. Sure. And then today you look at it and you just go. Oh, Come on, it's not the same thing. Taekwondo, I don't even recognize Taekwondo. Taekwondo mm -hmm. from the 80s um, to today, do not recognize it. It's, it's touch, it's tagged with your feet. So if a sport can destroy a martial art, um, it can make it too. And then, and then, yeah, once everyone focuses, once you believe that the martial art is the sport, that's it. That's, your, mm -hmm. that's the end of it. And no art is, uh, no martial art is immune to it. No, none at all. And, and I think one of the best at making sure that didn't happen, from what I can see, is uh, the Shodokan, the, the Tamiki. Mm. Aikido is, uh, still has a very strong emphasis on their kata and, and then has kata competition and so on. But really, it, it, it looks excellent. They're, they're like some, I've watched some top notch. Sure. Um, Carter application where they sort of put it together as they like, which is what you're doing, I guess, in Juwaza, but mm -hmm. sort of in a structured way for a competition. And it looks fantastic. And and I it's it's um yeah, it's it's a very interesting thing. The other thing I find very interesting is Aikidoka that have been exposed to swordsmanship, Japanese swordsmanship, mm. or or uh, uh, one of the, the schools of Japanese. Uh, old schools of Japanese martial arts, they tend to have a very different focus mm -hmm. and feeling to their Aikido. And I really like that Aikido is that fluent, but you've got to understand that if that training in the weapon system can give you that understanding and change your Aikido, then obviously a poor instructor and the lack of understanding also can make damage and, and make your Aikido garbage. Sure. So that's the problem with Aikido is it is so fluid, you know, it is so um, able to be moved around that um, it takes, a, you know, that understanding how to get that point focused from it to make it work and to make it a viable thing that's worthwhile, I think can go either way. You know, it's a, my hypothesis that, that, Oh, sensei's skill and talent was something that he could not teach. And I think it was because he could read motion so well, he just knew where to be 
where his attackers were weak. And it didn't help that his teaching style did not include really any verbal instruction. He would just show his movement and say, go ahead and copy it. And I think it, that, unfortunately, that teaching model is, is problematic in that unless you have incredible talent or insight to see what he was doing, a lot of people would co copy the motions and not be able to truly understand or get that skill that he had transferred to them um, unless they happen to discover it them on their own. Yeah, yeah. I agree. That's an incredible skill to read, be able to read attackers like that. Um, mm -hmm. I don't even know if you could train somebody in it, but if you could, it would certainly involve describing what they should be looking for to them not just yeah. showing what you can do and then letting them try to copy it. Hmm. Yeah, and that's right. It just becomes like a poor photocopy. And I also think, you know, I, I, I hope that I'm not copied when I'm an old man. I hope that people just, you know, allow, allow me to be um, part of what I do mm -hmm. and look after me. And then when I look at, you know, the Kodakan with their 10th dance, you know, they're, they're involved, but no one sits there and goes, I'll just, you know, I'll copy the way this very old man does his Osabagari. It's just great to see he's up there practicing his Osabagari. But what what was he to get to 10th Dung? You know, he was obviously something quite special and he's been around a very long time. So almost what he has to say is what's the most important. Sure. And um, and I look at Weshpa Sensei and... The, the, you know, when I look at his older work, and he, he's got quite a amount of uh, images and, and stuff on his older work, mm -hmm. and then it's like, okay, it makes sense to me because that's my exposure to Aikido. Um, yeah, it's it's odd watching where it ended up from what was happening in the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties. I think I also think World War II had a profound effect upon Washaba Sensei. Oh, I'm I think, sure. I think it just sent him over the edge, mm -hmm. and he really. And then, and then you know, look at what he did with uh, the Iwama stuff, and mm -hmm. and so on. It's very interesting, and and you know, I don't know whether it's on your channel or so forth. I saw this. Um, a lot of questions. Maybe it was a book actually. I was reading. Um, about his son being the, uh, the biggest influence in what modern Aikido looks like, yeah. and didn't have didn't have what his father's ability, and it became that circle room projection type thing rather than that sure. true understanding. Yeah, and that history, boy, we could just keep going. I know we we're hitting around ninety minutes here, but um, that is an interesting history, and I've, I've read that that Morahai kind of backed away from. The running of the schools when he even was still active and alive and he kind of passed off to i think it was kuichi tohei um to run one of them and then um the you know iwama was run by saito uh, you know he kind of just stepped back he'd go visit and whatnot but he was that really running those schools was not his not his bag but um anywho i think we're getting we've covered so much and i really have enjoyed this discussion uh, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to wrap up with? Um, 
no, thanks for the podcast and and the discussion. It was uh, it was interesting. It's always interesting to talk about it. Yeah, very uh, much I so. I think people get a lot yeah. out of this one. Okay, no worries at all. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Paul, for for taking the time and joining me. Um, this was a great discussion. I could keep we could keep chatting. I'm sure for hours, but we both, we both love this this topic. So, um, yeah. thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. Cheers, mate. You take care. Yeah. Cheers. Have a good night. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this discussion. Stay tuned for more episodes. I've got some great stuff on the way very soon. In the meantime, enjoy your training.